Hello, and welcome to the Film Design Podcast. I'm your host, Max Lincoln. Lisa Sofa is a production designer working across film and TV. She has a passion for horror and has designed The Chilling Tales of Sabrina for Netflix and, most recently, Peacemaker for HBO Max. My name is Lisa Soper. I'm a production designer uh, and uh, director for film and television. And I'm just coming off of uh, working on Peacemaker with James Gunn. Uh, and yeah, that's me. So um, how did you get to where you are now in terms of production design? Um, I love this question uh, because <laughs> I, get to talk, I get to talk about animation. I, I've always been a fan of animation. I've always drawn. I walked around with sketchbooks when I was a kid and always wanted, I was fascinated with film and I was fascinated with making film, but it was something for me that I felt was unattainable. Um, and I met this guy once uh, who was working on the 13th Warrior and he grabbed my sketchbook and he said, you know, you should take animation if you want to get into film. Um, and I said, why? <laughs> Cartoons, why? And he said, well, you're the, you're the actors, um, you're, the, uh, you're the sets, you're the lighting, you're the camera, you're all these different things, you're all these different departments. And if you can draw 24 drawings to represent a second of an illusion of life and make that believable, not only can you achieve the best design possible, um, but you'll understand how all of these different departments work together and how you need to be able to support them. And I didn't get it until I started actually designing. Um, I went and I, I started taking animation and I absolutely fell in love with it. The first project I did was The Bouncing Ball. And I, you know, I was begrudgingly sitting there drawing this circle over and over and over again and looking at my teachers going, oh, this sucks, this sucks, this is so boring, this isn't exciting at all, what's exciting about a ball? And then when I did my first line test and I saw it come to life, something turned on at that moment. And that's when I realized, Anything that we can <clears throat> imagine, anything that you could possibly think of could become a reality and you could share it with someone in a visual format like this. Um, so I stayed in animation for a while. I, I was privileged enough to be able to work with Ryan Larkin um, while he was still with us and uh, had some incredible uh, experiences with him and just one-on-one -on -one teachings with him. Uh, I got to work with Nelvana and Mercury Filmworks um, on a couple of different shows and a feature. And then one day I was sitting at a cubicle animating and a friend of mine called me up and he said, you should come and work on this $250,000 Herschel Gordon Lewis horror movie, quit your job that's paying great and make nothing. And I said, uh, okay, let's try. Um, so 47 days later, uh, I finished that show. I was unemployed. I had nothing. Pretty sure the show cost me money, but I was so overjoyed because I had taken that next step of drawing this illusion of life that was stuck between my mind and a piece of paper and actually being able to now utilize it in a tangible way, physical way that other people could touch and interact with as well. Uh, and it just blew my mind. Um, so I kept chasing it and I just picked up as many jobs as I could, you know, whether it was sweeping floors, whether it was driving people, whether it was doing lockups as a PA. Um, you know, a lot of it was centralized in the art department uh, until I eventually became a designer. And uh, I haven't looked back. 
I think that leads perfectly on to, to horror. You've actually worked on quite a few fantastic horror projects over the course of your career. Um, Clown being an example and the Black Coat's daughter. But um, Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, is probably the most obvious conversation to talk about. Um, yes. So that did come from a source material, but how did you go about creating this kind of satanic look and feel and vibe? <laughs> Um, you know, I, for me, horror is like slipping into a warm bath. It's, it's funny because I've been, I never went out intentionally to become a horror designer, but it just kind of happened, you know, project after project, you know, the first project I worked on was a really bad gore horror film, which I love to death. Um, and then a lot of the independent projects, it, it's cheaper and easier to be able to make horror. Um, so when I got a call about Sabrina, uh, I was actually working on another project at the time, which unfortunately didn't get its legs right away. So it, it had to take a pause. And uh, I, I said, like, the teenage witch? No, <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I'm interested in. And uh, my agent said, you know, you should really look at what this, this man, Roberto, is trying to put together for it, because I think it's up your alley. And immediately, the, the first thing I coined on, or I latched onto was Roberto's words saying, I want to make the scariest thing on television. Now, we've all seen Sabrina, it's not the scariest thing on television, but that's what initially attracted me to it. And I was just so excited. You know, it was a, it was a girl in a haunted house. Um, and when I showed up, it wasn't a girl in a haunted house. It was building a complete universe from Roberto's mind and giving it life and putting it together. Uh, so it was a labor of love and layers and uh, just endless possibilities of being able to put magic together. There was never a simple set. Uh, there was never something that was just basic. There was never a 90 degree angle anywhere that you could find. There was never a door handle that was at the regular standard height. My construction guys wanted to kill me. Um, but, uh, but it was fun and it was amazing. And, uh, yeah, it just, you, you just end up living and breathing it really. So there's such a specific and cohesive look across all the Sabrinas, um, mm -hmm. where did you kind of, where did the initial research come in and like, what were your kind of, where were you pulling ideas from basically? Um, I think kind of everywhere. That's, that's, you know, the big thing for me is really going out in the world, um, and, and, and walking the woods, you know, in, where we shot in Vancouver is beautiful and they have beautiful old woods. And that's such a big part of what this was. Um, you know, obviously there was a lot of research that went into just like the history of, you know, witches and, and everything like that. So we pulled everything that we could. Roberto gave us a lot of, um, material to also play with. Like you would get a script and it would have a specific line in it. And you're like, okay, what's a baddie bat? Right. I remember hearing these stories when I was a kid because I had a German grandmother. Um, but I never really thought about it. I never really looked into it. So then you start looking into these things and going through. And then there's other things like the Acheron configuration, which obviously doesn't exist. But you want to be able to try to put something like that together. So we used a lot of, um, was it the Lesser Key of Solomon? as kind of like a base, a map, a roadmap for us that, that gave us a palette. And then a lot of stuff came from that. So that's why you get like a lot of those geometric kind of looks and feels and the layers that come together that way. So a lot of the horror aesthetic is the combination of design and lighting. Yes. Um, how did you work with the DP to create the look? 
Um, without trying to be the Nick, we were trying to be the Nick um, by lighting as much as we could practically. Uh, it is such beautiful lighting and bad lighting can, and bad cinematography can kill it. So as much as I get accolades about how wonderful the production design looks and how the show looks, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's equally the directors, it's the writers, it's very much the cinematographers, it's very much the gaffers. Um, and the grips and everybody. I always hate those types of things where it's like literally all of us, every single person um, is responsible for that. Uh, candles are huge. Um, candles and the types of lenses that we were using. So when I got a call from Lee Tolan Krieger and he told me that we were going to be shooting this in anamorphic, immediately for me that says, okay, so we want lower ceilings so that we can get more of that world in. We want to really pay attention to what the floors look like. Um, it's, it's horror, so we're going to be on low angles. We're going to be on these panopticon kind of shots. And how do we help to motivate those, those lights? Um, all of the windows, for example, were plexiglass. And it was just, it was just sheets of gray outside of most of those windows. And to get that cascade of a gloomy day, because every day in Greendale, it's fall and it's gloomy. Um, <laughs> it's a depressing we, place, yeah. Yes, very much so. Um, but they were still magical. So you wanted to be able to have something that was warm. You know, we didn't want something... There's a lot of this kind of look that comes with horror where it almost feels like it needs to be dour, that it needs to be devoid of color. I like to look at it not so much... I, I guess the comparison is like, let the right one in, which sucks all the color out because it's it's like a vampire where it's sucking, right? Whereas... Bram Stoker's Dracula intoxicates us with it. And it just, everything was lush and you were always surrounded by that red. And that was more the approach that we kind of took. And that was with the lampshades. That was with um, the, the plexiglass that I made everybody pour crazy amounts of glue and tint over top so that when the light came through, you know, it would shoot off different colors and it would, you know, would collect kind of across the room. Then it would hit these beads that were another color that would hit another color. Um, and a lot of that was also based on the mood and the tone. So depending on what type of spell Sabrina was casting, you know, um, in the weird, we surrounded her room in red candles um, because she was making that boyfriend and it was a passion. It was this passionate moment for her um, of putting a body together. So that's what was kind of driven there. Uh, there's other kind of pure moments that are a little bit more somber where we use like white candles. Um, there was one night where I told the set deck department to puke the truck of all the candles. And uh, they looked at me and they said, that's a lot of candles. I said, yep. I said, every single candle and go and light them and put them in the academy now. And uh, they said, okay. And I said, we'll be over there. We're finishing shooting this in about 30 minutes. We'll be over there in 30 minutes. I want it done. And they did. And the DP walked in and he was a little bit freaked out because we were behind and he still had to light this whole set. He walked in the room, all the candles were lit and he looked at it and he goes, okay, we're lit. Let's go. <laughs> um, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful scene. Um, so it was, it was about taking risks and also not being afraid of shadow and light, I think, was, was really what part of that success was. And going back to where you were talking about anamorphic lenses, um, I guess, what are the main difficulties you found as a result of kind of that shooting style for the design? <laughs> I'm sure there are a few. There's a lot more world to build. Um, when you're building for standard television, um, there, you, you have, it's like walking around with horse blinders on, right? Like literally you could, look, you could think about putting a camera map box over your face and that's kind of what you see. 
you know, and, and stylistically, you know that you're always going to be kind of pointed here or you're always going to kind of be pointed here, you know, up or down in, in, uh, in different moments. But it's very controlled, whereas anamorphic, because it's so much wider of a scope, there's that much more of a world to build. And everything is about leading lines, right? So you, you, when you're framing your characters up and they're, they're sitting, you know, on the rule of thirds where they're, they're not always center punched, you, you want to find a pleasing kind of line. You don't just want that whole side to be void of anything or to, to be competing with what's happening with the character. So, for example, like if you look at um, a lot of the, um, the frames, a lot of these kind of details are curated to be pointing at a character if you want the focus to be on that. Or they're pointing away from the character where the character's eyeline is headed if we want them to be, if we want the audience to need to know what that person's looking at at that moment. The last Sabrina-related question, I promise. Um, creating hell, um, an interesting <laughs> area and some really lovely sets you had there with the big hands and the throne and all of that. Um, I guess back on the references like where did you because it's such a thing that so many people have an idea in their head of what this place could look like what were your kind of cornerstones for kind of constructing the the look and feel um i think the first one that i went to was clive barker uh i called him and i said help me please (laughs) um and if you look at the walls in the floor of um, the the main health throne room it's actually a mashup of some of clive barker's paintings um, so we licensed the paintings and worked with Clive Barker and uh, managed to, to put together some of those works because he, for, for me, anyhow, for me, he's the one that's depicted hell the best and, you know, through his writings and through his paintings and, of course, through Hellraiser. Um, and from that kind of point, everything kind of grew from there uh, and just wanted to feel as as evil and glorious and beautiful as possible and i think that's that's kind of where we went we leaned into a lot of the whole um fallen angel aspect as well like you can see that there's the the four the four corners of the room um have lucifer and it's kind of like in a mid transition transformation um and he's in gold because that's that's what he would do you know you would think for a moment it's going to be fire it's going to be brimstone and everything like that but not for him and not the way that uh that he was portrayed in our series so moving on to Peacemaker, I've only seen the first episode, but I um, absolutely loved it. That opening, <laughs> the opening title sequence is hilarious. Um, <laughs> um, it, I've got lots of questions, but um, yeah, tell me course. about this opening title sequence. What was the, um, what was, <laughs> what was the brief? What was the brief? The brief was not what we shot. Uh, well, with the exception, I'm sorry, of, um, of the song, yeah. uh, which, which, was, which was incredibly important. It is always very, very important with, the, with these scenes and sequences that James can, like, puts together, that only James can put together. Um, so we knew the song. We knew there would be a dance. We knew that it was going to move around. Um, and it was originally slated for another area, another space, um, very different from from what we ended up with. And late in the hour, um, there was there was a shift, and uh, it was decided that we should put this on a big stage. And I was very happy about that until I found out how much time I had to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I called James, and he he said, you know, like those old sixties, seventies, uh, like. Um, big glam flash shows uh, and uh, I think he mentioned something like laughing and I said okay all right sure I'll, I'll put I'll put a couple of things together um, 
And uh, I sat down overnight and I did about 30 different designs from 9 p.m. till, I don't know, it was like 6 a.m. or something like that. The sun was coming up and I had to get this approved because we had to start building that day. But I just kept going in all of these different directions. I had stuff that looked like 60s mod. I had um, a big tractor trailer with eagles all over it. We had this like American flag with this weird um, hand that could come and smash down, you know, with the Statue of Liberty pieces off of it. There were wolves howling at the moon with lightning bolts and flames. Like it, like anything you could possibly imagine was a was an option. And then I remember I was sitting there and I was just about to finish up and I had 29 designs, I think it was. And I went, uh, that doesn't feel finished. So I couldn't think of anything else. And I decided I'm going to try something completely different, something that's not in the brief, something that isn't what James asked for, um, and that it's nothing like it. And I put it together, and that's what, what we saw, was that kind of 80s throwback, weird, reflective surface, neon space. Um, and I drew it up, and I almost threw it in there as like a bogey, because sometimes you do that as a designer, where you, when you want them to, you know, it's like, I, want, I really want him to do the wolves howling at the moon with the, with the lightning bolts and the flames. Uh, he did like that one. Um, <laughs> but he ended up with this one. And I'm so happy that he did, because it looks so good. And it's very unique and it's very, it's one of a kind and it has its own voice. And I think that it paired beautifully with what James and the rest of his team put together uh, with the, with the dance and, and how it was shot. Yeah. I, I definitely think having a simpler set made a lot more sense because it, it's, it's very elegant, but I think if you did have a hand crashing down or wolves, the dance is so <laughs> fantastic anyway, <laughs> it might kind yeah. of detract from the dance somewhat. Uh, of course. But uh, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, so uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, visual humour in props. Um, it's one of my favourite things. And I'm constantly trying to sneak uh, weird ornaments into sets and then being told by clients to remove them. Uh, <laughs> the, his house um, is fantastic and it's absolutely rammed full of like weird yes. accoutrements. Like, uh, yeah, where he's looking for the key and there's various, like an Elvis squirrel. And yeah, just his whole house is just full of weird and wonderful uh things i know it's more set deck but what was your kind of plan for for creating his space and his kind of personal world it uh it was it was the most stressful and fun experience ever and i think that his trailer was one of the first things that we actually designed um i went and i started looking i was google street map walking around all of these different quirky towns um all over america and trying to really figure out like what what can we get away with here because the first rule that, that James always has is keep it grounded then go from there so make something that's real that you could walk around the corner and you could you could actually see yourself being at then we can take it and we can tweak it from there and we can modify it from there because that'll give the audience the best experience possible um so I took that and then I started putting together this kind of concept you'll never find a trailer that looks like what Peacemaker's trailer is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I did was I looked and I was like, oh, I love the siding on that. I really like this kind of shape. I really like this. I really like that. I really like this. I really like that. And started kind of working with my set designers. And I said, yeah, no, let's, you know, let's pull this over more. Let's do this. Let's do that. We also, fortunately, because James is also the writer um, and director, we could go to him with questions like, 
do, are we going to ever need something for X? Are we ever going to need, you know, a space for this to happen or for that to happen? So everything was put together with those types of things in mind. And then you would go through and that's when you could play and have fun and give the character more history that wasn't necessarily written on the page. Um, like, for example, the shower. You know, Peacemaker's shower, it has nine shower heads. My set decorator came to me. She's, she's amazing. Alex Royak. I love her to death. And she said, Lisa, why do you want nine shower heads? The shower only has one shower head. And I said, because he's peacemaker and he wants his own like, you know, decontamination chamber. So he went and installed a whole bunch of shower heads in, in the shower to like, you know, give himself a mock version. And he can walk in there covered in blood and dirt, even with his suit on. And he'll get, he'll just rotate himself and get sprayed down. And she just kind of looked at me and she was like, okay. Um, and then she started collecting gnomes. And I, t- <laughs> I thought, I don't know about this. But it worked. You know, everyone would come to set and they'd start laughing. And I think that's why James was cool with it. <laughs> because it was ridiculous. It was just absolutely ridiculous. And it, it kind of fit this weird, endearing side of Peacemaker. Because if we, just, if we went too harsh with him and too kind of austere... With, with the look, it, it takes away the human side of, of what he is and what his struggle is. You know, there's, there's obviously like lots of stupid jokes in there. Um, I don't know if you've caught it yet, but there's a magazine that he, he got for Eagly. Um, I think it's called Boobies and Tits or Tits and Boobies. And it's a bird magazine. But I, th- I saw that, you know, oh, Peacemaker would have picked this up for his bird for Eagly. And, you know, that's the bird's porn. Because it says boobies and tits on it, even though it's just literally a nature magazine about birds. Um, And those are the types of details that we love and the cast loves. And they get to walk around and actually interact with these things. You know, the, the, um, the Hitachi magic wand was something that I put over the, um, the counter in the rocker chicks apartment the day that we were doing that shoot. And I just, I was like, please use it as a microphone. Please use it as a microphone. Please use it as a microphone. I was at the monitor and he picks it up and he starts singing it. So I was like, yes, 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 yes. And it was just so satisfying uh, because it's funny and it's ridiculous. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, that's that, that layer and that level that we're always trying to strive for. And, you know, James is so successful with. Yeah, I was actually 100% going to ask you about the, the vibrator microphone is so so funny um the moment i saw it on the counter i was just like i i was was just i he i knew he had to do something with it it would be impossible not to but um it just further adds to him just being this kind of like sad idiot who's got no idea about the outside world but there's something so endearing about like by having these kind of weird props that he clearly has collected because like he, he he loves it kind of it really does help with the softer side um, but yeah, that 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 one was great, and that whole fight scene was hilarious. Like, um, tell me about the the space that you created. This kind of seventies oh, kind God. of vibe. So Wayne Danglish, our uh, stunt coordinator, put together a previs. So I drew I drew the set. I did a concept piece for the set. It was this you know rendering, and showed it to James, and I showed it to Wayne, and I said, okay, so here's the space that you've got is that going to work for you? And he said, yeah. So Wayne goes off with the rest of his team and they re- they build basically a cardboard version of that whole set. Um, and they do a previs and it's, it's always mind blowing. The previses are incredible. And I hope that one day those all get posted somehow um, because they, they are literally mind blowing and just beautiful the way that they're put together. Um, so 
I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, he gets, he gets here, he goes here, he gets slammed there. And I was like, wait, why is he getting thrown through the fireplace? And where that, where that wall is, there was a huge fireplace, like brick 1970s fireplace that I had there. Um, and, and Wayne just, you know, it's really cool, right? And I was like, yeah, it's great. I'm screwed. <laughs> like that's a, that's a support wall that's going there. It's not going to be possible. Everything was foam. The walls were foam. The floor was foam. The wall was a breakaway wall that was foam. Um, Alex Burdett, our special effects coordinator, uh, was absolutely uh, fantastic as well, working with us on how we could make this happen. I remember James came in and he st- he stopped us when we were in kind of mid-work of this. And he said, you know, I really love it. And I want to see him go through the wall. But he's a human being. So it can't be brick. And I said, okay, <laughs> all right. No problem. Because <laughs> the brick actually made it super easy for us because we could do little foam bricks and then just have them break apart. Having this for, you know, resets and everything like that and also the safety of it made it a lot more complicated uh, with the studs, with with everything. Um, but we did it. And, and that's, I think, the, the beautiful challenge of it was taking something that you look at and you watch and you think, okay, that was, that was cool. That was a really cool fight sequence. But then thinking about everything that went into that, the fact that it was six feet off the floor so that we could be able to have this airbag below for, uh, for John to be able to, to jump out onto, um, the different resets of the chairs and the breakaway chairs and the sofa and the fact that the front of the sofa that has those little wooden knobs were actually soft foam because nobody wanted to hurt themselves. And that was great. It was, but it was, it's those things that you don't normally think about when you're just designing a set. But when you're designing a set for something like this, everything needs to be fabricated and safetyed and triplet and quadruplicated and, you know, having endless amounts of supply of them. So how did they take out the entire foam wall to reset it? Was it just like a one entire floating wall they would just remove and swap back in a new one? Or how, how, what was the process? So because of the time that we, we had, um, it was it, for me coming from the background that I've got, traditionally what they would do is they would have a wall. It would, be, it would be the whole wall and the whole wall would come out after a take and they would clean everything up and then we'd reset. And that's usually a couple of hours which is quite unfortunate and it's definitely not something that we had at our at our leisure with this um so i designed something if you look closely at the wall when you're looking straight on it there's a wooden detail and a wooden detail and then above it there's this there's this brick detail which is the leftover brick detail from the fireplace that i ended up taking out and then at the bottom there's a footing from the old fireplace that i took out so basically it was just a little rectangle that was in the middle and that little rectangle popped in and popped out. And on the back, it was, it was completely open and all soft for when we were in the living room. And then when we went into the bedroom, there was a piece that went on top in the front there um, to be able to cover that other side. Um, so it, it came out in a few moments. I know that uh, I'm sure Lars, our, our amazing first AD, wanted it to be quicker. But I would say that it was definitely the quickest I've ever seen a wall uh, change over for sure. I mean, that does sound pretty efficient, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and, and, and super fun to fly through. Um, mm-hmm. Going on to the, the comic aspect of it, because he is based on a comic character, I guess a much lesser known one than a Superman or a Batman. Um, how much free reign did you have or how much source material did you have to have to rely on in terms of research and planning? Um, 
I think it was like it was a very big kind of collaboration. Like when in doubt, it was always what what James was driving us for. There would always be a reason for that. So even though you know Christopher Smith had a, had a castle in the uh, Swiss Alps, I hope I got that right. Um, you know, and he made his own weapons and everything like that. That's that's what the comic said. But that's you know I think what's amazing about this type of storytelling is that we can take something and be inspired by it and then bring it a fresh new life. And that's that was the thing to also keep in mind about Peacemaker, is that the original comics, you know, Fighting Five, awesome, doesn't really fit into a relevance and a relatability today. Um, in even, even Peacemaker's character. But what James was able to do was to take, cherry pick those pieces that he loved so much about Peacemaker and then flesh out the rest of the character to be something that's relevant for today that's something that's fresh that's something that's new but also something that's nostalgic at the same time it's finding that beautiful chemical balance and that's all James um you know he he writes these words down he speaks very passionately about what he's after and then you sit there somehow in a conversation with him and go oh my god it's so simple and how did I not think of that but you're right. You're 100% right. You know, this, this is what it would be. Um, but what was also amazing is that James was also, he would, he would let you have that freedom uh, to go off on your own. Like, I, I wanted so badly to have that Finn helmet. I was like, I have to have the Finn helmet. Have to have, I, like, I've got to get all the iconic helmets. Um, and we did. And uh, I think I, in the end, I had drawn somewhere around 60 or 70 different helmets. Um, and then we would have these uh, these these meetings where we would get together, and I would show the show the concepts. And James was like, "Okay, what does this one do? Okay, what does this one do?" And I was like, "Oh God, um, this is uh, this is uh, this is this one, right? This this is totally what this one does." <laughs> and he's like, oh, "Okay, okay, I, I see that." Um, it always had to make sense. That was the other thing too, which was the challenge, but also that that ex- exhilarating joy. It wasn't about just putting a color on a wall or putting a sofa that looked, you know, funky or retro. It needed to, we needed to know where did the sofa come from? Where did he get it? How much did he pay for it? You know, and these are the things that I tried to empower with my crew and with my team as well um, when we were putting these things together. And that's where they get excited about it too, is coming up with these backstories and all of these different things that, that could have been. Um, did we reference the comics? Yes. Uh, we had every single issue printed out large on the walls, like a massive wallpaper, and people would walk by them every day, looking at them, looking at different poses that Peacemaker was in for, for inspiration, uh, whether it was for fight scenes or whether it was for just leading lines of, of how something kind of laid out in a space that you could, you could kind of pull from. Color palettes. You know, so much of the color palettes came from the comics, the original comics, because it was beautiful, absolutely stunning. So a show like Peacemaker has got a lot of CGI elements involved, such as Eagly, and I'm sure there's lots of set extensions. Um, how do you work with the, the VFX artists to kind of keep your design kind of throughout? Great question. Um, I love, absolutely love our visual effects supervisor, Betsy. Um, she was inc- is incredible. Um, basically, I would start with a concept and I would show her this is where we want to go. This is what we want to do. So for example, I'll, I'll use the example of the Wild Estates. Um, the Wild Estates was not a six-story building. It was, it was like a three-story on one side and two-and-a-half-story, I think, on the other side. Um, it did not have balconies. It didn't have an awning. <laughs> like none, of, none of that actually existed. Um, 
But James is also very practical, so he wants to have as much physically built as possible. But the VFX comes into stitching it all together and making sure all of this makes sense. The lighting has to match, the set dressing has to match, the paint colors have to match, the, the type of stucco all has to match. Of course, there's flexibility when it comes to visual effects, but we want to try to be as close as possible for them so that they can have a, a little bit less of a challenge when they're trying to stitch everything together and, and doing these set extensions. You know, uh, Quantum and Folding Chamber is another example, Augie's Closet, of kind of, you know, we gave them 40 feet by 40 feet of a space and then would say, all right, now take over the set, go and take as many photos as you want so you can duplicate it and make it go on for, you know, like, cause the whole thing was based off of a Hoberman sphere. That's, I, I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I started playing with a Hoberman sphere and got excited. And I was like, this is what it is. It just what's goes a, forever. What's a Hoberman sphere? Uh, you know, those little toys that you can get for kids that, that, that crunch up. And oh, they're yeah, usually yeah, yeah. colored sticks, and then they open up into a ball. Really wide, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Very it's cool. um, it's this because uh, I started going into like fourth dimension physics and mm. looking at, you know, how how this thing could actually unfold forever and try to make it make sense, uh, even though it completely does not. <laughs> but we want to try to make it as close to reality as possible, and I kind of landed on the Hoberman sphere as as the that 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 piece to hold on to you know um like we were talking about earlier with sabrina you know what's that first piece that we hold on to it's the it's the woods never forget this is where they come from this is where they live you know that's why the wallpapers inside the house are done like trees because they're still in the woods they're of the woods because that's what's important to them um sorry to sidebar um but that's you know those are those are those little pieces and i think that with the vfx kind of growing growing off from that it's just really ha- communication it sounds simple uh but for some people it's very hard uh i was incredibly fortunate to work with such an amazing team um that peter safran that james that uh john stark jen tevis and michael williams put together for us um i've never worked with such an incredible team that all cared was all very very qualified um and really paid attention to what these things were like it's not it's not an easy thing sitting there going okay so here's a piece of wall if he's going to fall off of this and this is supposed to be the back of the building right now he fell this way right no he fell this way off off onto that one but this is actually four stories higher because we only had you know 40 feet of space to be able to build in the stage um and that's all of us being able to go back and forth with each other and be able to communicate uh, and to be able to have a VFX team that was there on the ground with us every day was uh, was really, really helpful. Working with a director in terms of feature films is, is a fairly direct relationship. However, with TV, you've got the showrunner and then the director might just be there for one episode. So mm-hmm. how does it work in terms of designing with for TV in terms of do you focus most of your attention with the showrunner and then the director? Like, it'd be good to talk about how that works. Usually that's that's kind of the way that it is. Um, with with uh, with Peacemaker, James, it was James's show. Yeah, it's slightly um, more you know, unique. <laughs> yes, yes. So we treated James more like a feature director, um, which was great. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. With something like Sabrina, um, 
it was Roberto. It is Roberto's world. It is his vision. Um, and the directors would would definitely have a, a sense of collaboration in there because that's that's their job as well, and that's why they're there. Um, they're there to also come and bring something special and magical. We're inviting them into our world so that they can share their experience with us as well. And I think that's very, very important. It, it keeps things fresh. It keeps things... Um, you know, it, it keeps a design on his toes. You start to find different angles in a room to shoot that you haven't really thought of before when you get someone in there with a fresh eye. Um, when when we're putting together big set pieces like, you know, the carnival, um, uh, speaking about showrunners, that's, that's Roberto. Because the carnival's being spread over so many episodes that once, if you have to contact all of these directors, which most of them at that point, you don't know who they're going to be at that because we're so early and ahead of them, um, it would just get into a case of kind of too many cooks. And also, Roberto has that whole beginning, middle, and end idea of where he wants this to go. So by um, dealing directly with him, then it makes it a lot more of a seamless um, situation. When you're crewing up, what do you look for in crew? And yeah, is there is there anything in particular you're always on the hunt for? Um, I am always on the hunt for people that want my job. <laughs> um, no, but the, I, I, I love what I do. I, I live and breathe what I do. I don't expect my crew to put in the types of hours that I put in, but I do expect them to come and not punch a card. I expect them to come and be excited about the project. Uh, if it's something that they're not excited about, if it's a content that they're not excited about, it doesn't matter what their resume looks like. Really, for me, it's, um, it's more so that they're invested in putting something together that looks incredible, um, that you can feel. And that is something that I've been very, very fortunate, especially in the Vancouver area, to get such an incredible team time and time and time again, who are passionate. And, you know, it's it's funny because like my set decorator um, for Peacemaker, when I hired her and I had worked with her before, I said, uh, I said, Alex, you know, got this show with James Gunn. Who is James Gunn? <laughs> I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? <laughs> How do you not know who James Gunn is? She's like, I do not know this James Gunn, but I will come and make this show for you. And I said, okay, um, do you want to hear about it? And she said, yeah. So I told her about it and she says, yes, I must do this show. I need a break from the witch world. I want to do something different. This <laughs> sounds fun. And I said, okay, great, let's go. Um, it's, it's those people that will text you over the weekend and say, I saw this and thought of the show. Um, do you want me to pick it up? Or I just thought it would be good reference for you. Um, it's not about how, what, you know, what's, what school they went to or whether they worked on Peter Pan or, you know, or no offense to Peter Pan. <laughs> I just first word that came in. Um, but, uh, but again, it's just, you know, coming and, and being hungry for that, that work. Like, you know, we had this really amazing um, production assistant, uh, art department assistant uh, for us. And his name was Diego. And a product, art, art PA is, is like the worst job in, in the art department. It's like the dregs. You know, you go and you, you do photocopies. You bring the plans down to the grumpy construction coordinator that gets mad and says, I was expecting these three days ago. You know, it does the coffee runs and gets, you know, shit on because the coffee runs wrong. Um, has to drop off all the little maquettes that we build and make sure that they don't fall apart or that the little man doesn't go missing. Um, but sometimes they have an opportunity to be able to dive in a little bit more and hone their craft. Um, and with, you know, with, with Diego, for example, um, 
I saw something in him and he was very hungry to learn more, to engage more. And I walked up to him one day and I said, look, we're really short on staff in the sculpting department downstairs and we've got to get all this stuff done. Um, do you want to go down and work with, with the guys? And he's like, yeah, let's go. Um, and my sculptor came up to me at the end of the day and he said, uh, tomorrow I need Diego again. And I said, okay. Um, but what was great about that is that it helped to give him a lot more experience to get him moving. You know, we've had, uh, and I try to do that as much as possible. Um, you know, when we're working with people, I've got uh, this, you know, another RPA that we had on, um, on Sabrina, her name was Ramona Ramsey. And she made a whole bunch of those props, those beautiful props, um, like those little boxes that the, uh, the kings have. You know, she did a whole bunch of that sculpting, just sitting at the desk, you know, with a little tiny lamp on and, you know, making things just from nothing. Um, and I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is really special. And now she works in the props department um, on a lot of big shows in Vancouver. And I'm always going to be chasing after her, trying to get her back on a team with me. Um, I never underestimate the crew. And I know I'm, and I'm sorry if this seems like I'm, go I'm going on and on and on about people, but you're only as good as your crew, in my opinion. And, you know, I love them so much. And, you know, when we look at something and we, we see it and when I get calls about a show and people say, wow, you did an amazing job designing that. Um, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's so much about that it was all of us as a team. And it wasn't, it wasn't just me because me in a room, yeah, sure, I can come up with a bunch of ideas, but unless I have, you know, incredible talent supporting me through it, I'm not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, definitely, I'm, I'm pro kind of crew enhancements and yeah, just finding nice people. Like I, um, I've worked with enough assholes to try not to be one myself. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think it's very important Same. to keep them as far away from you as possible. Um, yeah. So I guess as like to kind of move on from Peacemaker, like what are you working on at the moment? If you can talk about it, like, um, are you planning to go back into more horror worlds or features or what are you, what are you thinking future wise? Um, <laughs> well, right now I'm, uh, I'm in upstate New York. Um, I'm directing, directing my fourth episode, um, of a new series called Pretty Little Liars Original Sin. It's a, a slasher, um, reboot of the original Pretty Little, Pretty Little Liars. Uh, and it's for HBO Max. Um, and I, uh, I did the pilot, uh, for this show and got to bring it to life in a, in a very different special way than I'm used to. Um, and uh, it wasn't my first time directing. That was, that was on Sabrina. And I, I remember being told at that point, I'm not going to be designing anymore. I'm a director now. And I said, no, that's not how this works. I'm, I will always be a designer. And for me, it's not about um, going down or up. It's about opening a different door and having a different experience. I wouldn't have been able to have the experience on Peacemaker with James and with the rest of the incredible crew if I had said, oh, well, I'm a director now. I don't, I don't design anymore. Um, and I would never have had it any other way. I'm so happy that I had that. And I know that I'll have it again. Um, so right now I'm directing. And uh, as to what comes next, um, we'll see. <laughs> I do want to continue designing, absolutely, 100%. And for me, I just feel very fortunate that um, I just have a bigger pool to play in now. Uh, I can go and I can chase directing for content that I love, um, or I can chase designing for content that I love. Um, 
you know, horror is always going to have a special place in my heart. And, and I do love it. Um, it's what I watch. It's what I live. It's what I breathe. It's, you know, I wear uh, horror movie t-shirts is pretty, horror movie t-shirts and jeans <laughs> is pretty much the staple of every, every, I don't have dresses. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and, uh, because I, I think because it's, it's just ridiculous in a, in a different way than how within comedy is. And it has so much more texture and mystery to it. Um, and, and just fun, you know, the, when I do something and, and it's a horror set, it's so forgiving, you know, I can walk in there and say, okay, let's just use a blowtorch and start tearing this apart. Even though it doesn't make sense, you know, it's, it, it adds a mood, it adds a texture, it adds a feeling. And I love getting a feeling reactions from people and you get so much of that from horror and so easily. Um, you throw a bucket of blood on something and all of a sudden it looks, you know, like it has an emotional response without having an actor in there, without having anything else, um, very easily. And it's not because I'm trying to look for the easy way out. It's, I really love having fun. You know, the, the funnest moments I've ever had on set, uh, you know, was probably like with, um, um, Stephen Dunn on Closet Monster. You know, we did that movie for $1.6 million, which was nothing. And, you know, I'd be underneath a table being playing with this fucking hamster. I'm so sorry. I no, it's okay. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so under this table and I'm playing with this hamster and I'm like, please don't fall off. Just go to the kid. Go to the kid so he can pet you because this is what's scripted. And we can't actually make you do any of this. Just please just do it one take. Just one take. And the hamster did it. And it was just so gratifying that in this coming-of-age body horror, we got the Isabella Rossellini hamster to move across so that the kid could pet him for this touching moment. Uh, you know, that's what I'm after. Um, whether it's directing, whether it's designing, whether it's being a prop master, whether it's, you know, just getting coffee for people uh, who are there to tell really great stories. That's really what my future lies in. And I think that's a wonderful place to end. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. The show's intro was composed by Sam McGrail, 
mixed by Max Bloom, and the artwork was created by Alec Jagodzinski.